Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On this edition of the Eurotrip podcast, a memorable rewind. It's an iconic Eurovision, both on and off the Eurovision stage. We'll be getting to grips with the Dutch representative for Eurovision 2024. And talking of Eurovision 2024, we will be hearing from someone who will be integral to that contest when it rolls around in May. It's time for the Eurotrip. The Eurotrip, when I read that, I was immediately thinking of the movie. Do you know the movie? <laughs> Hi, I'm Leanne. Hello, Leanne. Uh, Leanne, are you a Eurotrip podcast listener? I am, yes. <laughs> I, I should say, I met some Eurotrip fans here. I was chatting with people outside the entrance. And they said, oh, are you, are you Felix Fist? And I said, yeah, I know you're from the Eurotrip. What did you have for breakfast? It was last night. I did not have a kebab for breakfast. Queen Lorene, Eurovision winner. Did you ever think you would be back here again? I get goosebumps. No way. Martin Ossadar. Executive Supervisor of the Eurovision Song Contest. Welcome to the Eurotrip. Thank you very much. Welcome back, I think it is, right? Hello, everybody, and welcome to another brand new episode of the Eurotrip, the world's favourite Eurovision podcast. With me, Rob. Me, James. And today, it is the final edition of Rewind for the series. But don't get too upset, because it's a really good one, as we're heading to Baku and Azerbaijan for Eurovision 2012. An iconic year. The first time we saw Queen Lorene herself on the Eurovision stage. Before she took to the stage, she was just another Swedish singer. She was yet to become a one-time or two-time Eurovision winner. Yeah, I thought it was only right that we went back to Baku for Rewind for the final edition of this series. Because, of course, as you've just said there, James, this is where Lorene's Eurovision story started. She won that night with Euphoria. And now look at what happened since. She's a two-time Eurovision winner, and we're heading to Malmo again next year. So it seemed the perfect place to to finish Rewind this time round. And you've been in charge of this edition of Rewind, Rob. And there's just so much more to Eurovision 2012 than meets the eye, isn't there? A hugely controversial Eurovision, it's safe to say. Everything that was happening in Azerbaijan with the Azerbaijan authorities and everything that they had to do or as far as they are concerned, had to do to, to host the contest in 2012. And also, James, we can't not mention Engelbert Humperdinck. What was all that about? <laughs> yeah, so there's plenty to dive into in Rewind this week, but plenty more on the podcast this week, uh, including some more news about next year's Eurovision and one of probably the most important people who's going to be involved next year, Edward Afsillen. Yes, indeed. Edward Afsillen, the man behind Love, Love, Peace, Peace, is back for Eurovision 2024. And we'll be hearing from him on the podcast this week. So we've got all that and more to come. You're listening on Acast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This is the Eurotrip. So James, here we are then. This is almost the end of term, isn't it? This is our final regular episode before Christmas. This is where the teacher wheels in the TV and you get to watch elf or something i don't know did you used to get to watch christmas films at school did, did you have that 
I feel like we have this conversation every time we get to the last episode before Christmas. I thought I was doing something a bit different, but <laughs> are we that are we that predictable? Only because I was going to mention Toy Day. Did you have Toy Days just before Christmas? Well, I mean, listen to what we did on this very podcast for the last couple of years, and you'll find <laughs> out whether whether I did Toy Day. Um, no, no, I don't think we did do Toy Day. I don't think we did Toy Day, but we were allowed to go to school in our like own clothes. Like we didn't have to wear uniform, which is why I've allowed you to turn up to the recording this week in your own clothes, not wearing a Eurotrip uniform. <laughs> if we did have a Eurotrip uniform, what would it look like? What would you? How would you design it? Would it be quite casual, or would it be really smart? Well, isn't this interesting as well? Because when we're in the press centre at various Eurovisions, obviously, so me and you have been to Turin and, and Liverpool in the press centre together, you do see other outlets, don't you? We won't name them, mm. but you do see other outlets in there like Stash and they've got like hoodies and, <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. So what could we do that was a little bit different? What do you fancy? Like a hat? I think it's... Like a jaunty hat? Or has Toby Eck got that market covered off already? I think he's got hats covered off. We should do like a three-piece suit, I think, and just a branded tie. A branded tie would be nice. What, so we just <laughs> wear a really formal suit the whole time? Hey, we'd stand out, wouldn't we? I don't know what people would say. It's like, oh, look, here come those fellas in the suits again. I don't think the language would be that polite, to be honest. <laughs> anyway, we'll get thinking about that. Maybe... Maybe if you look under your Christmas tree, James, you'll find a gift from me that is indeed something you can wear in Malmo next year. Won't, there won't be. There's nothing there. I, <laughs> I, I don't want to get your hopes up. There's, there's nothing there. Uh, anyway, uh, rewind to come as we look back at 2012. But last week was a really good one. We looked at uh, Eurovision 1982 in Harrogate. Great to speak to Jan Leeming as well. It's just nice to think about uh, just before we start to record. Great to have her on the podcast. You know, 40 years on since she hosted it. Lovely to get her perspective on the full thing. It sounded there like you just said, Jan Leeming, she's nice to think about. That's just, that's what it sounded like you just said. <laughs> and I mean, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not doubting it. I'm not claiming she isn't. But I mean, yeah, you feel free to say that if you want to. Do you prefer to think about her dogs? We did find out about her dogs last week. We did find out a lot about her dogs last week on the podcast. And you can watch me and you chat about her dogs over on our socials, can't you? Over on uh, over on Twitter <laughs> and on TikTok and, and Insta as well. So go over and do that. But yeah, we got some nice comments on the podcast last week. So thank you to all of you that have got in touch as well. Um, Simon, he uh, interacted with us over on Spotify. So you can do this now on Spotify. You can let us know what you thought of the episode. Uh, Simon said, loved hearing Jan Leeming. I can remember tuning in and watching the show. And I still have my Bardo picture disc single from that year brackets and nicole's album i don't know what else was on nicole's album other songs other less popular songs but other songs <laughs> i wonder if she did all the other versions do you remember in the reprise i don't think we mentioned this last week but in the reprise when she won in harrogate she sung the winning song in what was it in german english dutch and french didn't she i wonder if she did full length versions of uh, of the song in different languages what you reckon the whole album is just different language versions of the song well, do you remember when you used to buy singles, like in the early noughties, you would get the main single and then you would get like two dance DJ versions of it. I wonder if your album was like that, but just loads of different foreign language versions of the song. What, like the, the, the zoo hacker of, of their day? <laughs> is it me or does every single Eurovision song have a zoo hacker remix? <laughs> who, who is zoo hacker? What is zoo hacker? Does anybody know? I certainly don't know. Do get in touch if you do know. We'd love to hear from you. 
So, James, if people do want to get in touch, how do they do that? Uh, yes, you can get us uh, online. We're at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. Uh, apparently, you can leave us a comment on Spotify too. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as well. Or you can send us an email. Hello at EurotripPodcast.com. It is time, James, for the final time in 2023, for the very latest news from the world of Eurovision, from the Eurovision News Centre. Do you hope that over the course of the Christmas break, they might get the decorators in, we might get a new news desk, they might spruce up the news centre somewhat? It would be good, yeah, because around us right now, it's just, it's mayhem, isn't it, really? It should be a shiny floor studio, it should be, you know, it should be top of the range, and it's not, Rob. It's not. It's not. It's like Studio B in Czech Television HQ, where me and you were doing our interviews <laughs> ahead of the Czech selection earlier in the year. Oh, if you're listening, anyone from the Czech team, I am joking, kind of. Anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of papers down here. I mean, I think this, genuinely, this, this, this notebook I've got in front of me here does go back to, let's have a look, um, some of the interviews I was doing ahead of Eurovision 2022. Um, oh yes go on give us the prep what we do and what notes do you have i was prepping for an interview with um felicia lu who was in uh unser song für turin yes i remember uh didn't obviously uh get the get the ticket to represent germany mm. that year beaten by malik harris who incidentally um i listened to his new song on uh spotify earlier and it's it's very good Mm. Uh, speaking of Germany as well, they've got a new national selection for next year. It's a bit confusing. I've not read much on it, Rob. Yeah, it's a bit like The Voice, but not. Germany just loves doing things in a really complicated way, as, you know, I think we're allowed to say that, given that we're from the UK and the BBC also have, in the past, liked to do <laughs> very similar things. Um, yeah, so rather than just being one night now, the selection show is over multiple nights, I think you have five pre-recorded programs that go out over the course of a week. You've got Conchita, who's a coach on there. There's another famous singer who's a coach on there. And then the coaches pick the acts each night who are going to progress to the final. And then in the final, I think you've got more acts than we have done previously. And then the winner will go on to represent Germany in, in Malmo. So they're trying things a little bit differently. Obviously, off the back of a couple of really poor results and a few poor results over the last few years. So, fingers crossed for them. Hopefully, it goes well. And we will endeavour to find out more about the selection and and talk more about Germany in the new year. Yeah, well, let's uh, jump across to the Netherlands because we're recording on Monday, Monday evening. And uh, we got the Dutch entry announced earlier this morning. Joost Klein, Rob. Um, They got 600 submissions in total to represent the country. It was whittled down to five for some live auditions. And then Joost Klein uh, has been announced. Let me just read this quote for you uh, from Twan van der Nieuwenhuizen who is the, uh, the chair... Easy for you to say. He, very easy for me to say, and I've definitely said it wrong. Uh, he's the chair of the selection committee. He was also the head of contest, wasn't he, in Liverpool, and I think a few years beforehand too. Uh, Rob, he said, there were a lot of entries from a wide range of genres, but in our view, Eust uh, had the most hit potential. In the song, you hear his familiar mix of party and nostalgia. Do you like the sound of that? I am intrigued 
by the sound of that. And the only reason I say that is because I have been kind of delving into Eust's past songs. And they are interesting, and people will either love him or hate him. That is my impression of how people will feel about Eust this year. Uh, I say him. That's very personal. I don't mean him. His music, I mean. Not him. (laughs) But... This is very different from anything the Netherlands have done for a long, long, long time, which I think probably can only be a good thing. And if people are talking about your act, again, it's only a good thing. It's better for people to either love you or dislike the song rather than people to feel a bit meh about the song. I mean, let's have a listen. This is one of the songs that went viral from Eust over the course of of summer 2023. And you were sharing this, James, with with me a little bit earlier on today. So let's have a quick listen. Now, you were saying this song was all over your TikTok, right? It was, yeah. And, and you said you'd not heard this before. I shared it with a couple of other friends as well. And they said they'd not heard it either. So I wonder what corner of TikTok I'm in. If you're listening, and was this all over your TikTok? I hope I'm not alone. Uh, but yeah, it really stands out, doesn't it? This obviously, we should say, this isn't his song for Eurovision. It'll be announced at a later date. But uh, that genre, that style that he has would really stand out if that's what he's going to bring next year. And I wanted to find out a bit more about Eust as well, because his music is obviously very interesting. So I was like, let's find out more about, about him as well. So I got in touch with Cory. Hello, Cory. Cory, our favourite Dutch podcast listener here on the Euro trip. I say favourite, there might be other Dutch podcast listeners. I don't want to single Cory out, but Cory's been pretty great to us down the years. <laughs> anyway, so so Cory got back to me and she said, uh, he's a Dutch rapper who's been making waves on festivals for a few years now, both here in the Netherlands and in Belgium. Uh, his songs are in Dutch. They're filled with clever wordplay and a lot of his stuff is hard style influenced he caters to a younger audience especially his songs aren't really paid on the main radio stations a lot because they're quite out there musically i think that's safe to say uh a lot of the older people might not know who he is but he is sure to draw the crowds he had sold out shows and a chart hit in germany over the summer so germany du point i think we know where germany's 12 points might be going maybe next year yeah, could do, could do. We never know a long way to grow, of course. Um, let's hop across the border. No, two borders to Luxembourg, because also on Monday, uh, we got the uh, eight finalists who are going to be competing for the ticket to represent Luxembourg on their return to Eurovision next year. So there's eight, Rob, in the list, uh, six soloists, one duo uh, and one group. And as they were coming through on Monday, I was playing the voice game because uh, we seem to get people who have been on the voice before who uh, take part in national finals or, or, or get the ticket eventually to represent the country. Uh, uh, I count three have been on the voice before and one has been on the voice kids. So it's half of them have been on a, a version of the voice, which is clearly a good thing. It, it works for a lot of countries. And the contestant that you've just mentioned there who has been on The Voice Kids, I'm pretty sure that she's 15 years old at the moment. She'll be 16 in time for Eurovision, but 15 right now. Yeah, exactly, which is remarkable. Uh, Yeah, I'll quickly read out this quote as well from Eric Lehman, who's the head of delegation for Luxembourg. He said, We are excited to present a diverse lineup of eight remarkable hopefuls. Each artist ignited distinctive flavour on the stage, promising a night of musical variety that reflects the vibrant spirit of our performers. We would love to get more on Luxembourg and their participation in Eurovision in 2024 to you here on the podcast. We are doing our best and we would love to uh, to chat to, to the Luxembourgish 
team? Yes, indeed. We will endeavour to do that. Uh, just a reminder, we're recording on Monday. So by the time you listen to this, you will uh, know who is representing Slovenia and you may well know who's representing uh, Czechia as well as the votes close and the announcement is uh, due very, very soon. But James, the biggest news from last week, arguably, I would say, is the return to Eurovision of Mr. Edward Afsillen. He is not a past participant. He has not taken to the Eurovision stage himself, but safe to say he has left a indelible mark on the contest over the last decade and more. Yes, he has. He is a very talented uh, writer, director. Uh, he's just a remarkable talent over in Sweden and was heavily involved in Eurovision 2013 and 2016, most notably remembered for writing Love, Love, Peace, Peace at the end of Latin 2016. Yeah, we all know it, don't we? It's gone down in history as one of, if not the most loved Eurovision intervals of all time. Um, Riverdance, hello. Don't worry, we haven't talked about <laughs> you either. But yeah, I was lucky enough to catch up with Edward in Turin. So I thought I would bring this interview to you, or at least uh, a little bit of it as well, because Edward was out in Turin as one of Sweden's commentators for the contest that year. And I got the chance to have a chat to him all about his past involvement with the Eurovision Song Contest and how Love, Love, Peace, Peace came together. And I think this gives you an impression of how much this man loves Eurovision. He'll be back writing the script for Eurovision 2024. That can only be a good thing. So yeah, here's what happened when we caught up. Edward, can you please tell our listeners how, in many, many ways, you are connected, intertwined with this thing we call Eurovision? Well, I mean, growing up, Eurovision was my happy place. So, so I mean, my first Eurovision live was in Stockholm and then Copenhagen in 2001 as a fan. But, I mean, since working with the Melody Festival, and I wrote the script for Eurovision in 2010 in Norway, and then I wrote and directed in 13 and 16 for Petra Mede and Petra and Mons. So that's my history with Eurovision. So you are the man responsible for Love, Love, Peace, Peace. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, I wrote that. That was, that was the most fun to write. What was it like working with, with Petra and Mons on that production? Because obviously you have these ideas in your head and then you have to communicate them with you know, the rest of the production team and then Petra and Mons. Can you remember kind of going to them for the first time and saying, I've got this idea, it's going to be the history of Eurovision in dance and song. You know, what did they say to you? Well, I mean, they're both awful people. <laughs> so mean-spirited. No, they're the nicest people in the world and we're friends from so long ago, both me, Petra Mons, I count them as family, to be honest. So this, the second it was decided we could do it together, I took them to my apartment, we cooked food, Mons brought wine because he knows wine, Petra brought nothing as, as usual, and we ate and we drank wine and we watched Eurovision clips. And we watched the clips we loved, we watched clips we didn't love, and we just together sort of... Uh, pinpointed what we wanted to do and what we wanted the, the, the atmosphere and the tonality to be. It was just a wonderful night. And from that on, we just, we just had fun together. And I, I, I think that the story of Eurovision, they were on board from the, from the second, because I just said, let's do an Oscar opening, because that was it. It was an Academy Award opening, but in a, in a Eurovision semifinal. That was my pitch. And it's odd, because we'd had, what, 60-something years of Eurovision, and no one had ever done a show number about the Eurovision. So to me, it just felt like such, an, such an, a perfect way to go. 
There were so many iconic Eurovision artists from the past, of course, who, who were also in, in that whole production. I think Alexander Ryback was part of it as well. Lordi was part of it as well. You know, we saw the hamster wheel. <laughs> How was it securing those names and getting them involved in it? Were you part, part of kind of selling the idea to them? Yes. Um, I, I, it seems like it's very easy to get them to come because what they do on stage is, is fine, but it's also just, I think, coming back to the contest, meeting the fans, seeing people, artists that you might know. It's about coming back to a kind of home. So I think they all said yes right away, and they said, fun idea, but just to come to Stockholm and be the Eurovision is something that we wanted. So Lordi, uh, uh, Ryback, all of them said yes kind of quickly. You're listening to The Eurotrip, the world's favorite Eurovision podcast. When you aren't listening, find us on social media at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Nice to dip into the archives there, Rob, and uh, hear your chat with Edward from uh, from back in, in Turin in 2022. Of course, he's usually the, the Swedish commentator, isn't he? But I think he usually takes the year off whenever Sweden hosts of 2013-2016. So I doubt we're going to see him in the in the commentary box next year. It'll be, it'll be a, a lot more busy. Well, of course, he was joined in the commentary box in Liverpool by your friend of mine, Monzel Malau. Zalmalau? That's not how you say his surname. <laughs> I never know how to say his surname properly. What would you say? Normally say Mons Zalmalov, but I don't yeah, think yeah, that's yeah, right yeah. either. I think that's, yeah, that's much better. That's much better. Okay, we'll go with Mons Zalmalov. Anyway, he was joined in, the, I'm just saying his name a lot now. He was joined <laughs> in the country box, Edward, in Liverpool by Mons Zalmalov. Um, do we think Mons will be in the box again? I think he probably will. I don't think he's hosting it, is he? I think he's going to be back in the box. He's going to be doing something. If he's in the country box or on the stage or as an interval act or pre-recorded segment, or he'll be doing something. We just know that for sure. Yeah, if you're one of Monza's mates, maybe don't invite him for dinner on that <laughs> Saturday night because he'd probably be, probably be busy. Maybe ask him for a ticket, though. He might have a free ticket knocking about. I think he might, yeah. Uh, let's, before we say the magic words to let us rewind, uh, let's just say how good oh, this... No, oh, oh, no, that wasn't it, was it? Sorry, that was a... I'm ready on the button. That wasn't no, no, it, was no, it? no, not yet, not yet. That wasn't the button. Okay. <laughs> uh, how good this... Um, how good this series has been to research. We started with 2002 and 2003. Uh, we went to the early 90s, early 80s, way back to 1969 as well. And we just sort of pick these out, don't we, Rob, of years that we think might be good to research, where we think there might be a good story to tell. And I think we've 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 hit some good years this, uh, this time. Yeah, to take you behind the scenes, me and James went out for dinner here in London, I think just before or maybe just after Christmas uh, last year. And this was after Rewind Series 1. And then we wrote down a list of years that we were like, let's do these years for Rewind Series 2. And then when it got to last summer, so the summer just gone, I said to James, you still got that list of uh, years that we wrote (laughs) down for Rewind Series 2. And then I went, no. And then you went, no. So, yeah, who knows whether any of these years were on that initial list of the years that we would cover for Series 2. <laughs> but it has been a really, really great time. I mean, early noughties Eurovision is some of my favourite Eurovision. There are so many amazing stories. The songs are just totally out there. And that was brilliant to do at the start of the series. 69 is a contest I knew nothing about. 91, obviously, I had the honour of, of having a look back at 91 and chatting to some amazing people. That was great fun. And then James last week, 1982. Again, you got some brilliant guests on the podcast. So, I mean, what a lovely old time. Really, really fun. And we've got one final one of the series to bring you. Rob, it was yours. You can say the words. It's time to rewind. 
Yes, it's time for the final rewind of the series, but we're going to go out in style as we remember Lorene's first Eurovision victory and head to Baku and the contest in 2012. Uh, so what was happening in the world back then? Uh, it really doesn't feel that long ago, does it? But uh, a lot can change in 11 years. Uh, thankfully, though, uh, 2012 didn't turn out quite like the American disaster movie of the same name. Well, maybe it did. I've not actually seen the film, but I imagine it didn't. I just read it. You wrote that in the script. I read it. I've not seen it either. <laughs> I, I just, I just can't imagine it was that bad. <laughs> I mean, there wasn't quite an apocalypse in 2012. Anyway, in the same month as the song contest back in May, Chelsea would go on to win the Champions League, beating Bayern Munich in Munich. Uh, later that summer, of course, London would host the Olympic and Paralympic Games. While in October, I don't know if you remember this, James. Austrian skydiver Felix Baumgartner became the first person to break the sound barrier without any machine assistance. He did that during a record space dive from over 24 miles above the Earth's atmosphere. Unbelievable. Yeah, I remember it well. I remember watching it live on TV. Did you? Or were you You were uni then or something? Were you out partying? Or I don't remember watching it live, but I do remember the day it happened. And I, yeah, it was it was odd. I seem to remember. A very odd, very odd time. But he, he, he did it as a crazy stunt. Indeed, humans, eh? Uh, but uh, <laughs> to Eurovision, and uh, we'll start this week's rewind by looking back at the 14th of May, the previous year, uh, when a relatively new Eurovision nation won the contest for the very first time. Mesdames et messieurs, meine Damen und Herren, the winner of the Eurovision Song Contest 2011 is Azerbaijan! Alan James, shall we debunk a myth from the contest's history? Because despite what you think you know, and at least this is what I thought anyway, Azerbaijan did win the tally vote in 2011. Now, admittedly, they won it by just two points from Eric Sader in Sweden, but they did win the tally vote. And James, I don't know about you, but I've always gone on with my life thinking that Azerbaijan didn't win the jury or the tally vote despite winning Eurovision. You might tell me I'm wrong. No, I wasn't sure either way, to be honest, but I, I do remember 2011 just being a bit all over the place for voting. I don't know the stats off the top of my head, but I seem to remember a lot of countries got 12 points from, from other countries and it was just a bit all over the place. It was very close up and down the board, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure Eurovision 2011 set the record for the most number of countries receiving 12 points. I believe that is correct. Uh, and also, we can't not mention that without mentioning the UK, who I think I'm right in saying finished fourth in the tally vote or fifth, I think it was fifth in the tally vote, and 22nd in the jury vote. So, yeah, how different things could have been. Anyway, James, we're here to talk about Eurovision 2012. Ultimately, Ellen Nicky triumphed... Oh, back to 2011. Ultimately, Ellen <laughs> Nicky triumphed by 32 points, while returning Italy, of course, Italy's first contest back, uh, they took home second. Well, here is Eldar Gasimov, one half of Ellen Nicky, and I spoke to him on the podcast a couple of years ago. And here's what he told me about what that win had meant to people back in Azerbaijan. Then we came to Baku and this whole people, like it's, it was more than 3,000 people in, right in front of the plane where people were not allowed. And this was the first victory since, this big victory um, since uh, the, the Soviet Union was uh, broken and uh, I the first time in my life I saw people 
altogether happy. So where would Eurovision be held the following year? Well, uh, that question was quickly answered. Just two days after the contest in 2011, it was announced that Baku would host the event the following year, with the president announcing a special concert centre would be built in the centre of the city. Now, at this point, though, there are some other venues still being considered for the event. The EBU actually toured the 37,000-seat Tofik Bahramov Stadium, as well as the Haidar Aliyev Sports and Exhibition Complex. Uh, had, by the way, the organisers opted for the Tofik Bahramov Stadium, uh, that would have been the first ever open-air Eurovision in the contest's history. Yeah, I wonder if they'd ever have gone for that. I, I seem to remember maybe Cyprus or Malta suggesting something if they were to ever win. But I, I, logistically, I just don't think that would uh, that would happen. Um, yeah, ultimately, though, in late August, the Azeri government confirmed the new concert centre would host the event with the arena now named the Baku Crystal Hall. Uh, so a German company won the contract to build a venue, which would have to be completed in just over six months in order for the venue to be ready to host the contest. Uh, noticeably, the EBU didn't confirm the Crystal Hall as the host venue until January in 2012. Now, the lavish arena came at a cost. Human Rights Watch criticised the Azerbaijani government and the Baku City Authority for carrying out forced evictions against local residents, allowing them to demolish hundreds of homes in order to build the venue. Here's a clip from the BBC's Panorama programme, which aired just a few days before the grand final. Old communist blocs aren't what the regime wants the Eurovision audience to see. They ordered residents to leave, many refused, and the authorities moved in while some were still inside. It was around 5 a.m. when I heard a noise and the building shook. A bulldozer had started demolishing the other side of the building. We were scared and I ran out with my children. Widespread criticism of the Azeri government would continue, with many accusing them of using their role as hosts to improve their image on the national stage, and we'll have more on that later. Now, to the event itself, though, and on the 17th of January, the EBU initially announced that 43 countries would be taking part in the 2012 contest, so a equal record for the most number of countries participating in the contest. Uh, they included a return for Montenegro, who had last competed in 2009, while Poland, however, decided to withdraw. The Polish broadcaster decided that they couldn't afford to take part the same year that the country were co-hosting the European Football Championships with neighbouring Ukraine. There had even been talk uh, of a debut for Liechtenstein. Uh, yeah, when hasn't there really? I think we have that conversation every year, don't we? <laughs> uh, in November 2011, two documents were released which appeared to show their national broadcaster, One FLTV, had been accepted as an EBU member. However, it soon became clear that this was an editing mistake on the documents, I tell you. Honestly, honestly. Anyway, eventually 42 countries would compete. Armenia were forced to withdraw. Now, this came after failing to receive assurances on the security of their delegation. Their decision came on the 7th of March, a week after the Azerbaijan president had referred to the Armenians of the world as his nation's main enemy. Armenia had already selected an entry, the band Dorian's, and their song would have been This Is Our World. Like 
while Dorians would get their chance to represent Armenia the following year, the EBU subsequently fined the Armenian broadcaster for withdrawing after the deadline to compete, and even threatened to ban them for future contests. But to the UK now, and do you remember where you were on the 1st of March 2012? Rob, before I carry on, do you remember where you were on the 1st of March 2012? I do remember. I was at university, as you alluded to earlier on, and I was walking to a friend's house to start pre-drinks before a night out. And I looked at my phone (laughs) and discovered that the BBC had just announced that said person was representing the UK and I dropped my phone... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because the 1st of March 2012, the day Rob was walking to a friend's house for pre-drinks, was indeed the day uh, that the then 75-year-old Engelbert Humperdinck was announced as the UK entry, only the second internally selected artist since 1957. The first had been blue the previous year. Isn't that fun? Isn't that a fun UK Eurovision stat? So, so... Yeah, so the the entire act had been internally selected. The the public had no choice over artist or song. And that was the first, the second time, rather, yeah. Only the second time that ever happened. And yeah, it took all the way until 2011 for the public to have no say whatsoever in the, in the UK's act, other than the first first entry back in 1957. I almost don't believe that. Like, I, I kind of do, obviously. You, you've researched and written it out. But I almost don't believe that. That's remarkable. Isn't it just? But yeah, mm. anyway... Mad, mad stuff. Well, safe to say, isn't it, I think, that uh, Engelbert didn't hugely enjoy his Eurovision experience. (laughs) Uh, Speaking to the Manchester Evening News, uh, local newspaper here in the UK, in 2015, uh, Engelbert was quoting as saying, don't mince your words, Engelbert, uh, he said, it is a diabolical mistake to let this show continue. It is a mockery of the song contest formats. (sighs) I don't know what to say to that. I don't know. No, me neither. Anyway, the UK, of course, would go on to be drawn to sing first in 2012 to open the contest. But, James, unfortunately, I couldn't find much evidence to support the long-held belief that this was done by the EBU to help the veteran singer, (laughs) the thinking being that the earlier slot would help the UK's entrant, given that the contest, of course, that year would begin at midnight in Baku and Engelbert normally normally long in bed by then. I feel like we always have this rumour, don't we, that they were deliberately chosen to go on first just to... Make it easier for Engelbert. If anybody in the in the organisation of 2012 is listening, let us know. We uh, we always keep our sources uh, secret. <laughs> we will not out you. <laughs> anyway, uh, we might have expected better uh, of Engelbert's song, given the songwriter Sasha Scarbeck had previously written James Blunt's chart hits "You're Beautiful" and "Goodbye My Lover" and uh, Miley Cyrus's song "Wrecking Ball." Not often that you can say that Engelbert Humperdinck's Eurovision participation and Miley Cyrus are linked. However, they are, and now you know. Anyway, we will get to the results a little bit later on. Now, interestingly, there were four returning acts in 2012. Calliope returned to represent North Macedonia, having previously done so in 1996, and she would, of course, return for a third time in 2016. Uh, Jelko Joksimovic returned to represent Serbia. He had been Serbia and Montenegro's debut entrant in 2004, and had also, of course, hosted the contest in Belgrade in 2008. And other returners included the Icelandic singer Jonzi, and, of course, Jedward, who were representing Ireland for the second consecutive year. 
Now, someone else we've previously spoken to here on the podcast is Nargis Burke Pettersson. Uh, she was one of the three hosts in 2012 alongside Eldar, who uh, we heard from earlier on in Rewind, and Leila Alieva. Uh, intriguingly, she says the same name as one of the president's daughters, and at the time was married to the director of Azeri Television. Uh, you can listen to Nargis's full chat with us by scrolling down on our podcast feed to early 2022 when Rob sat down with her for a big interview. Uh, but here she is telling us more about their preparations for the contest, including one memorable disagreement. Our scriptwriter was German. He spoke very good English, but he's not a native speaker and neither three of us are. But I, I remember him writing, writing a script and in that script, I, because I was in the green room, if you remember, he wrote something and here my sit neighbor is blah, blah, blah. And I was reading and I was like, um, you don't say sit neighbor, you know, in, you know, in English, that's yeah. not a thing. And he's like, well, what, what do you know? You don't speak, you know, like English is not your first language either. Right. So, the, and I was like, no, I'm telling you, like, you don't say that in English, you know? And I think we found some like Irish cameraman and we're like, hey, you're a native English speaker, right? Do you say sit neighbor in English? They're like, no, we don't. <laughs> so I was like, I won this one. So there you have it, James. If you want any clarity on a Eurovision script, maybe if Edward Afsillin's listening and he's not sure about something, go and approach an Irish cameraman. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Uh, now then, fast forward to May 2012, and the Eurovision Circus is descending on Baku, including, of course, hundreds of journalists covering the event from across Europe. Uh, Swedish journalist Toby Ek, uh, who is, of course, a regular here on the podcast, uh, he flew out to Azerbaijan to follow the Swedish entry that year. A female singer who goes by the name of Lorene. Now, you might have heard of her. Uh, more uh, on Lorene a little bit later. But here's Toby uh, sharing some of his memories of covering the contest. We went to Baku. Baku was a very, very, very strange city uh, in a very strange country. Uh, they'd they'd basically, basically put up, up movie sets for us. Uh, if you took an official taxi going through uh, the capital of Azerbaijan, uh, from your hotel to the arena, the 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 official taxi would would drive you through streets where everything looked uh, spectacular and clean and nice and and all that. But if you took an unofficial taxi, they would drive you the quickest way, which was through the city, and you could see uh, how worn down and how poor uh, so many people were, and how how um, how they really lived. To the songs then, and unusually for Rewind, we will start with two songs that didn't actually make it to the grand final. The first of which, James, you might remember. Oh, there he is, my Rambo. Well, before we talk about your Rambo a little bit more, here's what happened when you asked him how he relaxed in Baku. Uh, I noticed uh, the first day that uh, near the hotel was some small, uh, small uh, shop and they uh, sold uh, caviar. Caviar in a big cans, you know, kilo of caviar. Like it was like uh, five euros a kilo of caviar. And uh, uh, me and my band, we, we start to eat uh, 
lot of caviar and we just ate that enormous bunch of caviar and sitting on the toilet. I think I must think about this conversation I had with Rambo at least once a week. At least once a week, Rob. Was this your, it probably wasn't your first ever interview for the podcast, but it's got to be in your first two or three interviews you ever did for the Euro trip, right? It was. I think, was this on the fourth episode of the podcast I think we ever did, so summer 2020? Yeah, it was one of my first interviews I did. And I, I've definitely told the story before, so I'm not going to, but he definitely surprised me. He was far too early for the interview. Uh, he went a bit off piece towards the end. I will tell the story again at a later date, but uh, yeah, it's a very surreal experience to chat to, to Rambo and he had a very or, or, or should I say just a unique time in Baku didn't he? Yeah definitely as you heard from that clip uh, yeah uh, I thought you might enjoy that anyway I was I was reading Chris West's brilliant book again by the way I'll, I'll pop a link to it in our buy me a coffee notes and uh, it turns out that that song had far more meaning than you may have potentially realised now at the time the economy in Montenegro was struggling the country owed many other nations money including the European Union and when we got to the end of the song banners were of course unveiled which demanded a rescheduling of the country's foreign debt so we when you think that Rambo was a joke entry, you know nothing. <laughs> uh, and also, uh, in that same semi-final, uh, came a first Eurovision appearance for a woman who would eventually be written into Eurovision legend. And I don't mean Lorene. Everybody here's better than before. Everybody here's falling out for more. Everybody here's Oh, we should probably get to the grand final though, James. And while Engelbert opened the show, it was song number six that had gained much of the media's attention, both before and during the event. The Russian grannies, of course, uh, as Chris West, uh, the author of the book Rob mentioned just a moment ago, as he describes them, six grandmothers from a village over 1,000 kilometres east of Moscow. Uh, proceeds from their appearance at the contest went to rebuilding a church in their home village, uh, while they also partly sung in Udmurt, uh, a language only spoken by half a million people. Uh, their cuddly image was, of course, a calculated one, aimed at showing Mother Russia in a different light to the country who had previously occupied Azerbaijan for much of the last century. Now, Russia would go on, of course, to finish second, a long way behind our eventual winner, who we'll come to in a moment. But performing after Sweden that night would be a country we've yet to see return to the Eurovision stage. Turkey there, of course, making their final appearance at the contest in 2012. Uh, they blamed the return of a jury score to the voting system as the reason for their withdrawal. But as we know, that night there was only ever going to be one winner. The winner of the Eurovision Song Contest 2012 is Sweden! 
Now, we were lucky enough to speak to Lorene twice in the build-up to the contest in Liverpool earlier this year. Here's what she told us about the moment she won the contest back in 2012. When I won in, in Baku, I didn't understand that I had one. I thought, because I whispered to Tristan Bjorkman, my, my main man, so, and I was like, so, are people going to vote now? Or, you know, cause so, uh, you know, and he was like, are you crazy? You just won. Get up on stage. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, well, to wrap up then, Lorene won with Euphoria going on to become a huge hit around Europe. Apart from, we should add, France and Italy, where it only charted 26th and 27th, respectively. Uh, we've already mentioned the Russian grannies. They finished in second. Jelko Yoksimovic and Serbia came home in third, while the host nation Azerbaijan came in fourth. Uh, Albania, they scored their best ever finish in fifth. Uh, Jedward would come home in 19th, while Engelbert and the UK would finish 25th out of 26. To finish then, here's Loreen and Euphoria. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back then to the Eurotrip, the world's favorite Eurovision podcast. And that, James, was the final rewind of this current series. And it was very, very fun looking back at Eurovision 2012. A very memorable Eurovision, both on and off stage, it is, uh, it is safe to say. Yes, indeed. And just during that break there, I was flabbergasted by that stat. What was it? France and Italy, Euphoria only charted 26th and 27th. I was wondering what points France and Italy gave, uh, gave Sweden in the final. Uh, Italy gave them null point. Uh, France, though, gave them 12 points and they only let it chart in the late 20s in the charts in France. Don't know how that happens. Very bizarre. Very bizarre. Although, of course, James, there is the well-known stat that... Uh, how many points did the UK jury give ABBA and Waterloo? Very true. No point. No point. It still went on to become number one in the UK, did it? So, didn't it? So it doesn't necessarily reflect what might happen in the chart at a later date. If you've got any suggestions, by the way, for any years you would like us to cover if Rewind were to return for a Series 3... Don't want to get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> then do let us know. Uh, pop us an email if you want, and then we'll we'll have it to uh, to keep, and we can come back to it. You can do that at hello at eurotrippodcast.com. But we're going to wrap up today's episode, of course, with the one second song. And the uh, the scoreboard isn't looking too nice uh, in, in your eyes, Rob, because I think the score was seven nil to me. It is. It is seven. But unfortunately for me, by the end of this week, 
could be 11. You could have an 11-0 lead going into Christmas. Well, let's get to it. I'll, have some, I'll give myself some good thinking time just to make sure I can get it. Can I listen first uh, First off? You, you certainly can, yeah. So for the first time for you, James, and everyone listening, here is this week's One Second Song. You absolute... <laughs> what on earth? <laughs> what? What is the criteria for the One Second Song? It can be... Any song that's been performed at Eurovision. Right. <laughs> and I don't know what your problem is. Anyway, I mean, you, you said earlier on you needed a bit more thinking time. Well, you've had a bit of thinking time there. So for you again, and for everybody listening, here is this week's One Second Song. That is foul play, and you know it is. That is foul. So, so within the rules... So to get four points, obviously, I'm looking for the, the, the song title, the artist, <laughs> the year it took part and the country represented. I don't think I'm going to get anything. Although, in a way, I guess it, it sort of makes it easier in a way if I have to take a guess, because it sounds very 50s or 60s, probably 50s, really. And fewer countries took part. So maybe arguably it might be a bit easier. Well, maybe, maybe. Let's find out. I mean, let's 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 have uh, let's have your answer. I say your answer, more of a more of a guess this week. I no, think. no, I'm going to use some sort of uh, some sort of logic here because I, I'm going to go for the United Kingdom. I know they were in it in the early uh, or the early days of the contest. I'm going to say 1957. I know mm-hmm. they took part. It was their first year. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it was Patricia Bredin. I know she definitely represented the UK in 1957, but I can't remember the name of the song. Let's say it was called Cry. Well, I really feel bad for you because genuinely you put some effort into that. Um, it, yeah, 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 it, it, I did. No points at all. Nothing whatsoever. No way. No. Oh, that's such a shame. No, I'm really sorry about that. Um, would you like to know who it is? Absolutely. I'd be interested to hear if I've... Uh, <laughs> I'd be interested to know if I've ever heard of them. Well, that depends, James. How much do you know about Eurovision 1961? <laughs> Probably as much as you do, I reckon. Well, James, of course... <laughs> Uh, you there were listening to uh, Lale Anderson with Einmal Sehen wir uns weiter. Let's have a listen. Überall auf der Welt fällt der Abschied schwer und das Herz tut manchmal weh. Manches Wort, das man sagt, glaubt man selbst nicht mehr. Lebe wohl, adieu. Noch ein Lächeln, ein Kuss. Noch ein Winken, ein Gruß und ein Schiff fährt hinaus und mit ihm das Glück, doch die Hoffnung bleibt zurück. Einmal sehen wir uns wieder. Right, and uh, uh, what country was that for? Uh, that was for Germany, of course. Okay. Uh, Lale Of course. Yeah. Give oh, me a break. Of course. Uh, <laughs> there singing in German and French. Lovely. How did they do? How did they do? A great question. I'm pleased you've asked. Uh, they came in 13th out of 16, unfortunately. Didn't do that well. Um, would you like to know why I picked old Lale uh, from uh, from Germany 1961? Yeah, I've got no idea why you would have done. 
Apart from just to throw me off, obviously. Well, obviously. No, there was some, no, there was some thought behind it. Uh, Engelbert Humperdinck, of course, when he represented the UK, would have been one of the oldest participants to take part in the Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, mm-hmm. The oldest participant, of course, to uh, take part in Eurovision at this point in time uh, was a member of the band Takasa for uh, Switzerland, I think back in 2017 uh, or 2018. Maybe 2017. Or 13, rather. Or maybe, maybe way back then, indeed. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, the so anyway, this sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole, and I thought I would discover which Eurovision participant in the history of the contest was born the longest ago. Earliest. Yes, that's a good one. Yeah, so when, when were they born? So, Lael Anderson... Singing for Germany in 1961 was born in 1905. Oh, I'm a bit disappointed actually. I was hoping somebody had been born in the 1800s. I'm actually well. I'm not disappointed. I'm good. I'm glad to know the fact. But aren't you a bit disappointed? Nobody in the 1800s has done it. Yeah, I am a bit sad. So yeah, you can do the math. She was 56 at the time of representing Germany. So even then, James, even in the early days of the contest, it was a young man's game. With Eurovision. <laughs> Indeed it was. Indeed it was. Uh, now then, that wraps up this week's episode of the Euro Trip and the last regular episode of 2023, the last one of the year. Uh, we will be back. Uh, don't switch off just yet. We've got a few housekeeping bits and bobs to run through uh, before you leave us. Uh, we'll be back with some regular episodes. I say some, with regular weekly episodes uh, in the new year. Uh, but we've got a few irons in or on the fire, depending on your persuasion, uh, for some Christmassy gifts over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, if you know the podcast well, over the last few years, you will know that between Christmas and New Year, we like to bring you some in-depth chats with people who, of course, have a storied history with the Eurovision Song Contest. We, we did so last year, we did so the year before, and James, we, we memorably did so in 2020 when, uh, well, I mean, we, <laughs> we, we, we spoke to Lee Smithers from the BBC for the first time, but that's not the interview that I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you sat down with Paul and Charlie from, uh, from the Rock and Roll Kids, Ireland, 1994. Uh, the interview itself, I think, was about an hour long. Um, but oh, and the rest. <laughs> well, no, that, that was what I was going to say. But your chat with them, I think, went over the course of about four days. It was like one of those, <laughs> like one of those charity telethons. At one point, I think that interview. <laughs> oh, it was such a good morning. I remember that so so well. <laughs> but anyway, we're doing our best to bring you some more of those lovely little fireside chats over the course of Christmas and New Year this year. So keep looking back on your podcast feed and checking our socials and you'll find out who we're chatting to this year. And uh, yeah, James, what an absolute pleasure it has been. That is another year in the books for the Eurotrip podcast. Uh, a year when we got the opportunity to bring everybody listening to this, the podcast from the United Kingdom, hosting a Eurovision Song Contest. Something we never thought would potentially happen when we first started this here Eurotrip podcast. Yes, indeed. And what a pleasure it's been. Uh, it sounds like we're leaving forever. Uh, we'll be back next week or the week after or the week after that. So, very uh, soon. Yeah, we, very soon. Yes, we're not going anywhere. It sounds like we're giving an acceptance speech or something. But yeah, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back very, very soon. In the meantime, of course, you can keep in touch with us online at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. Hello at EurotripPodcast.com on the email. And uh, you can read all of our exclusive stories on EurotripPodcast.com. Uh, as well make sure you subscribe leave us a review rate us five stars and reply to us on spotify it's a new thing apparently 
And if you want to give us a Christmas gift, feel free to buy us a coffee over on buymeacoffee.com forward slash Eurotrip Podcast. Couple of quid, two, three, four pounds if you want. And me and James can get ourselves a physical coffee in Sweden. <laughs> Actually, that'll probably cost more than two, three or four pounds. But you know what I mean? Yeah, you contribute to the cost of one coffee in Sweden next year. Uh, from me then, uh, for this week, it is goodbye. And from me, it's goodbye. Happy Christmas, everybody. Although we must be back before Christmas, so now I regret saying that anyway. Take it or leave it. See ya. <laughs>